I'm Anthony Davis, and welcome to the 21st episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Alexandria Villasenor, 17-year-old climate justice activist and executive director of Earth Uprising, and Nadia Khalif, an 18-year-old climate activist from Northern Virginia, council member on the Earth's Uprising Global Youth Council, advocating for sustainable policies and solutions at the next COP. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Um, I was The reason I wanted to talk to you guys today is because I did an interview with a, a journalist called Umair Hack uh, a few weeks ago. And we would, he talks a lot about climate and he writes some quite scary stuff about, you know, birds dying and falling out of the sky because the, the climate is too warm for them to fly. And it sounds dramatic. And I said, isn't it crazy that this thing is happening to our planet? And yet the only climate activist that most people can name is Greta Thunberg. Why is it that there are not like more people that we are aware of? We can we remember their names. And he agreed. He just thought it was really sad. So I made it my mission to kind of go looking for this new generation of climate activists to find out who it is that's doing it and, and what it's all about. Um, Alexandria, let, let me start with you. Can you just tell us a little bit about your organization before we get into our conversation? Yeah, of course. So uh, Earth Uprising International is a youth-led climate education to action pipeline organization. And so we focus on educating young people on the climate crisis and empowering them to take action. But we're also expanding and starting to look at other ways to take direct action because we really need massive global mobilization in every aspect of our society. And we also are international. We have young people in over 30 countries. And um, what's really important to our organization is expanding to other issues as well and realizing how the climate justice movement is intersectional with every other movement out there. So the climate movement is the movement for reproductive rights. The climate movement is um, climate justice is racial justice. The climate movement is the fight for food and water issues. And so we're really looking at how can we make sure to support and amplify every other movement out there so that we get climate action. Nadia, how did you first come across the organization and get involved? Well, it all started off with another activist named uh, Muhammad, and he was a part of Earth Uprising. Um, he started the Earth Uprising chapter for uh, Chicago. And um, just seeing the work that he did over social media inspired me to inspired me in wanting to join. So I asked and I said, how do I get involved? And um, from there, I joined Earth Uprising as a communication member. And then eventually I was elected as a global youth council, a democratically elected body of activists from different countries, from different parts of the world. And with this council, we're responsible for creating campaigns about sustainable policies and using that in our in COP in the in COP in, in Egypt and um, just having the ability to work with other youth activists is just very inspiring and motivational for me. I I, I was looking at your website and it, it lists all of the kind of kids involved basically across the world, and everybody is very young and very enthusiastic about their involvement. 
And it really made me feel kind of wonderful, to be honest, because I feel like I can't trust the grown-ups anymore. You know, like we we need a new generation who get it, people who realize the significance and the magnitude of the problem. Um, let's just have a look at a couple of the stories that have been making the news. So the U.S. Supreme Court has sided with Republican-led states in an effort to hobble the federal government's ability to tackle the climate crisis in a ruling that is going to have profound implications for the government's overall regulatory power. This is a 6-3 decision. Uh, All six of the conservative justices voted to effectively prevent the uh, EPA from limiting the pollution caused by factories, you know, this kind of um, uh, emissions of, of fossil fuels. I mean, this is massive, isn't it? I mean, some people are saying that this is uh, you know, one of the most dangerous things that could have could have happened. Um, uh, the court is effectively making clear it would wa- rather represent the interests of corporations and the super rich than the needs and the desires of the vast majority of Americans or the people on earth. Um, Alexandra, how, how do you how do you feel when you kind of see this? Well. Uh, This is disastrous for climate and environment, of course. Um, But what's being missed is that this is disastrous for youth and future generations. And that's because of the urgent timeline that we're on to reduce emissions. So we literally have less than seven years to reduce our CO2 emissions or else we burn up our carbon budget completely and our ability to keep global warming um, under that 1.5 degrees Celsius. So this ruling delays the kind of action that we need and maybe even puts it out of reach. So there will be more disasters and more deaths because of this one SCOTUS decision, and those disasters will affect the most vulnerable first, like young people and people of color and in the global South. So it's really devastating, and I think that it's angered and made a lot of people ready to make their voices heard um, and really make sure that we start doing something. Um, And we're gonna, just make our voices heard even more because this is a complete outrage. They're, they're saying that about the decision on Roe v. Wade, that actually the advantage of this decision is it will encourage more activism and it will make people not take voting for granted. Nadia, how do you feel about you know America as a country that is, you know, has has built its fortune on oil and gas. I mean, can you ever see the Supreme Court, even if it was evenly balanced, can you ever see the Supreme Court coming down on the side of environmentalists? Or do you just think that, you know, this is a this is a fossil fuel based country? So I would say that this is a fossil fuel based country. And with the recent decision on the EPA, it shows a lack of urgency, the Supreme Court and politicians and even um even uh, senators and other politicians have. And it's very devastating, especially since Alexandra mentioned how we need to take action urgently. And with this recent decision, this would mean that this would be undermining all the efforts that we've um, progressed and we have accomplished so far. And um, this also is just kind of a remnant of the Trump administration when he pulled out from the Paris Agreement and when he showed a lack of urgency for climate action. So for us youth, this is kind of, this puts us in a point where we have to advocate and uh, 
it inspires us to create campaigns and to just use this opportunity to use our voices at a time that at a time where we're regressing and not taking climate action. You're 18 and 17. The Supreme Court justices are considerably older. I mean, the you know, Katanji Brown Jackson, who was just um, seated just a few days ago, she's 51. I mean, she has children, but the reality is that it's it's people of your age that are going to suffer the most. I mean, I have a six-year-old daughter, so she's she's also going to have to deal with the consequences of these decisions. Do you think that the problem is that people that are older, that have kind of grown up at a time when oil and gas is everything and has never really been questioned, do you think it's just impossible for them to get their heads around the reality that 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 it's unsustainable and that the planet, you know, the temperature of the planet is rising at a rate that is going to make living on this planet impossible. Alexandra? I think what is really the the difference between the mindsets of the older generations and the younger ones is the fact that youth are the ones who are going to be impacted the most by the climate crisis. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we're so involved. And it's And so when we look to our future, every single aspect of our future is going to be changed because of climate change. So where we live, that's going to be affected by climate change. What type of career we have, where we go to school. A lot of young people are having conversations about whether or not they want to have families. And that's all because of climate change. And so um, when it comes to the older generations, they aren't the ones who are having to have those conversations. And so they are still very much ingrained in the society that um, they have been taught up to live in. And so even in school, we're not really taught the what's happening in our world and what's happening with climate change. We're instead taught up to be the perfect consumers and continue living in this world that we've been brought up in. And I think that that's a society that a lot of adults are still ingrained in. But young people, we can't be ingrained in that society because that society won't be what our future will be. And so There's also a lot of young people who are feeling a lot of eco-anxiety and climate grief. And a lot of young people are depressed and having a difficult time sleeping. They're fearful for their future and how it's really crippling for our generation because we know about the climate. And um, it kind of feels like a generational warfare. How it's interesting that my generation is talking the most about not having children and they are the ones who are having their reproductive rights taken away. Nadia, how does it feel for you to kind of be a, a, in and around, around and amongst this? Like, how, you know, when you go to sleep at night, do you do you have a kind of heavy, heavy feeling in your heart about the, the future? Because America doesn't look like it's going to be changing direction anytime soon. I mean, these decisions are happening during a, a Biden administration, albeit with a with a very, politi- you know, right wing political court. But this is, you know, this is the Biden administration who is telling people because of the shortage of uh, oil and gas at the moment, because of the war in Ukraine and other factors, telling American producers to drill more. I mean, how do you sleep at night knowing that your current president, who's a Democrat, is having to make these choices? I do often feel really overwhelmed just with the state of how the U.S. is dealing with the climate crisis and how I mentioned before, there's a lack of urgency. And it gets really overwhelming just having to look at the headlines on the news, just hearing about shootings, just hearing about the inflation rates and how that's 
impacting um, citizens around the country and how the U.S. is carrying on these um, infrastructure projects that are damaging to the environment overall. So it does get really overwhelming and it does create a lot of anxiety on youth um, who have to who will have to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis. And do you think you're when you talk to your friends about it, are all of your friends activated in the same way that you are? Do they understand the urgency? Do you think everybody who's 17 or 18 gets it? Or do you think people of that generation need convincing as well? I would say, unfortunately, not all of my friends do understand the understand the impacts of the climate crisis. And I would say that there are some youth that do need education and they do need to be well-informed about the climate crisis. And I think with Earth Uprising, we have, our purpose is to educate youth and kind of provide a peer-to-peer education on the climate crisis and to even inspire action from youth from different countries and to give them a platform to share their stories and to to discuss how the climate crisis is impacting them directly. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've heard about, you know, certain books that talk about race are being banned from schools in some, uh, you know, conservative uh, districts. It's going to be the same for the climate crisis, isn't it? That'll be the next thing that they'll ban. They'll be like, we don't want children in school learning that the planet is heating up and it's the fault of fossil fuel producers. This this really is where it's heading, isn't it? That there'll be this, in, you know, in some states, it'll be a big subject and people will be very open about it and people will be driving electric cars and, and, you know, trying to, you know, have solar fitted on their houses, on their roofs. And then in other states, there'll be nothing other than just seeing oil fields, as is the case in, in, in Texas. Alexandria, do you do you feel that, you know, politics has really got in the way of this? Because it's only really America that has politicized the climate crisis in such a way. 100% politics has gotten in the way of taking climate action. I mean, even looking back at um, our politics, we've seen our politicians being bought off by the fossil fuel industry. We've seen decades of misinformation campaigns from the fossil fuel industry, too. And a a lot of that is targeting our political system with that misinformation. And so they've created such a divide between um, people in our country. And so I think that, you know, when we look at whether someone is Republican or Democrat, um, that does get in the way of whether we think climate change is an issue or not. But climate change is not a political issue. It's just what's happening to our environment. We can't think of it as a political issue. And so one thing that I think um, is really interesting about young people today is the fact that there's a lot of young people, no matter what political party they come from, who are starting to talk about how climate change is not a political issue. And it's just something that we have to do. Climate change is science and we can't treat it as something that um, is just happening within the borders that we've created in our society. Climate change is not just a US issue. It expands to other countries across these borders that we've created. So it's 100% a scientific issue and we have to start looking at it that way. We can't politicize something that is just science. Ron DeSantis, who's the governor in Florida, uh, refers to it as Democrat stuff when anybody asks him about the climate crisis. Although saying that, you know, there's flooding issues and all sorts of climate issues in Florida, and he is taking action, but he's just rebranding it and changing the name of these projects so that his voters don't 
think that he's doing something about climate change. I mean, that's the that's the stealth like nature of politics here. Let's just uh, talk for a second about um, how much of the emissions are the fault of business versus people in their domestic lives. You know, because I mean, I try, I have a little project at home. I'm quite environmental. I drive an electric car. I try and charge my phone with solar, just with solar, because I live in a sunny climate and I have a little solar panel and I charge up a little battery. And then overnight, I charge my phone using the power of the sun for, that, I, that I've captured during the day. It's a tiny little thing. I'm using about 30 or $40 worth of equipment to do it. It's not a huge amount, but it, it's nice for me to know that I'm walking around all day using a phone that was powered from the sun. It's just my thing. Now, the reality is that it's factories that are pumping out emissions at, at these huge rates that are really the true polluters, not me charging my five-volt phone. So, Nadia, do you think that this is something that businesses are taking seriously enough? Or is this something that, you know, we all need to have a collective responsibility for? I think that it's important. Um, I would say that businesses do have, for a long time, have had so much leeway in, uh, in their manufacturing process. And I think that we have to understand that the climate crisis is a social and, is a social and economic issue that will impact Americans um, when when there are droughts and natural disasters, people will lose their homes, um, that will create food insecurity, and it will just cause illnesses, and it's a public health concern. So I think that, I think that businesses and large corporations need to be held accountable by our government, and um, because they've been given a lot of leeway, they've been able to have many uh, have they've been able to establish com- um, factories in developing countries like Bangladesh and get away with pollution and safe unsafe working conditions. So I think that it's time that we create uh, we create uh, labor labor unions that hold these large corporations accountable and create safe working spaces for workers and also promotes sustainability within the manufacturing process. People don't really understand how food supply is going to be affected by climate change, do they? I mean, almost everything we grow and raise in the U.S. is facing uh, facing some climate stress. Wheat and other grain crops are particularly vulnerable. In fact, in the in the Great Plains, where most of the U.S.'s wheat is harvested, uh, drought there has uh, depressed the winter crop. Um, we've seen this with Ukraine and the war there. All, all of the um, uh, grain that comes out of the Ukraine is is now being affected, and it will affect world food supplies. I mean, this is this is massive, isn't it? I mean, this is not like something you can joke about. And maybe people feel like if they're eating, especially Americans, you know, if they're eating like cheeseburgers and Twinkies, <laughs> classic American diet, they'll be like, well, this isn't even natural food anyway. So it, what you know, we're it's not like I'm going to Whole Foods and eating natural produce. And I feel like there is a disconnect between realizing that food actually comes from the ground and comes from our planet and isn't just manufactured in a lab, although, you know, we are increasingly processing food and and manufacturing it. And sometimes for the better good, you know, they're doing that with 
with with meat alternative products now and you know I've been vegan for three years and so I'm trying to do my bit there as well but I recognize that if we can't eat and it's too hot to go outside what does that mean for the future of the human race Alexandria uh, if we can't eat and if we can't go outside I think that well first of all that's one of the reasons why we have to really start focusing on adaptation and the reason why is because we're already seeing the effects of climate change. But if we don't start mitigating climate change right now, then we're going to see worse effects in the future. And so that's why you have to start focusing on our adaptation processes, because what is the world that we're already looking at going to be like? How are we going to live in it? So we have to start looking at infrastructure. Um, when it comes to adaptation, we have to start looking at food. And you did talk about um, food security. And, you know, I actually have been talking a lot about um, how food is a huge um, security issue too, because when it comes to um, climate change and global conflicts, there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, fights over resources like oil, gas, and particularly food. And so when it comes to in the future, when all of these resources are so scarce, how is our world going to look like and work together? And so that's why we also have to start focusing on peace building too. Um, and putting in those those connections and also how conflicts affect youth the most um, when it comes to how a lot of young people are going to have to move from their homes. We're going to have a lot more climate migration because of what is happening. Um, so I, I think that the two most important things when it comes to the future of um, that we're talking about here is climate adaptation, but also peace building processes all around the world. It's it's very hard for Americans to have doomsday conversations. I've realized this as a, as a British person living in America. It's almost like uh, Americans have grown up being told that this is the greatest country in the world and therefore no harm will ever come to it, you know, that our, our leaders will sort us out and we've got the skills and we've got the resources. And, and none of that is true when it comes to climate change, right? Because the climate change doesn't see borders. America is no different to Mexico, no different to Canada. And, and tragically, the, the saddest statistic, and it's the simplest one, is that America is the second biggest polluter in the world after China. I mean, that must make you very proud as Americans, <laughs> I'm sure. You know, it's like, what is America good at? It's really good at polluting. How, how do we take a subject that is as huge as this, such a doomsday conversation as this, where we're literally talking about the collapse of civilization, and it's not that far away. You know, they're, predict they're predicting in less than 100 years. How do we have this conversation with our peers and our friends and them not say, look, I, I don't want to talk about this. I want to go and watch Netflix. Nadia. So I'd like to first off um, say that Americans have the privilege to not feel that they have the privilege to say that they don't believe in the climate crisis because they're not feeling the effects feeling the effects that um, other countries may be um, feeling. And I specifically um, am from Somalia, which is a country most impacted by climate change. And there are constant droughts, people dying from the climate crisis because they're not able to find water and people from pastoral communities, their, their livestock is dying and they have to, they have to migrate to other cities just to find food and water. So us as Americans, we have the privilege to deny the climate, deny the facts about climate change. We have the privilege 
to just sit comfortably and not want to take any action. But I think that it's important that uh, we educate our family, our friends, the youth, um, and having conversations with them and also ha like sparking intergenerational conversations with the older people in our family and explaining the impacts the climate crisis is having on people from marginalized communities, underserved communities, and how we need to take responsibility and also take action, especially given how the, cl uh, the climate crisis is an existential threat to public safety. But we are seeing the signs, aren't we? Because it comes in the form of extreme and freak weather events, doesn't it? And I think that's another disconnect that people can't make. They don't say they, they, they talk about the flooding. I mean, I was critical on Twitter the other day of, of uh, CNN, they covered a whole thing about um, uh, Yellowstone National Park, which has seen this massive flooding, right? It's it's ripped out whole sections of it. And they and all they talked about was how awful this is for people who want a vacation there, you know, <laughs> who, want to, who want to go camping at Yellowstone. And they didn't once in this whole 10 minute package about this event, they didn't mention climate change. And that's CNN, you know, which is a, a mainstream news channel, which has a left leaning political opinion. And they didn't even mention climate change. So the buck really stops with the media in many ways, doesn't it? But these freak weather events are not actually freak at all. They're, they're, they're no surprise to people that study climate science. There's going to be more of them, whether it be heat waves, whether it be flooding. But it's also, and this is what you were describing, I think, about Somalia, and we're certainly seeing in the whole Indian subcontinent, like that is really where the heat is now focused, and that's where it's starting. And we are seeing people being displaced. People are going to have to go to higher ground. There'll be less water on higher ground, so people will be literally fighting over water which is evaporating. The, the human body cannot live in these temperatures. Now, we're all sitting in air-conditioned environments. It's going to be okay for people that are living in rich nations who have enough fuel, but for the poorest people on the planet, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. Alexandria. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that um, there's a big focus on loss and damage. Um, and, you know, I, I know that we're talking about Nadi mentioned this, you know, it's really interesting because when we talk about talking to people in the US about what is happening, but in other countries, um, talking about it and talking about climate change and why this is happening is a privilege because they're already living what is happening and they're already seeing what is happening. And so when it comes to loss and damage, we need these rich countries need to pay poor countries for mitigation and adaptation. Rich countries have committed money that they haven't um, that they haven't even ended up, uh, you know, giving to these, paying to these countries either. And so I also think there's a huge accountability in that, that we have to make sure that these countries are upholding their commitments and um, make sure that they follow through on them. I, I drove uh, through Texas and Arizona last week when there was a uh, excess heat warning and on the car, the gauge was showing 107 degrees outside Fahrenheit. And I, and I, was, I couldn't get out the car, you know, just to stop and, and, and literally go into the store was impossible. You had to, like, run for your life to get out of the heat and the humidity. 
I mean, this is the reality of the planet heating up, isn't it? And people will say, oh, well, Arizona's always been hot and Texas has always been hot. But, you know, this is not cyclical in the same way that some climate change deniers think it is. You know, they go, yeah, OK, there is climate change, but it's going to cool down again because, it, it, you know, that's what it does. It just it's happened before and it's going to happen again. What do you say to those people who've kind of come up with their version of climate change and they are really trying to press and push an alternative viewpoint? I mean, is this a matter of opinion? Nadia? No, I don't think this is a matter of opinion. And like I mentioned before, um, people, because they're, they, they have like so many advantages, um, they have so many advantages, they're able to sit in their air-conditioned house and they're able to cool off by the pool. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, they're able to just deny uh, climate science. But there are, um, natural disasters that occur within the US, like fires in California and coastal communities in Florida, which suffer from hurricanes. And there are areas within the US that um, the sea levels are expected to rise. So these uh, these natural disasters that are occurring should be a sign for these climate deniers that the climate crisis is real. I mean, that's the irony, isn't it? That they're saying it's almost like they're standing, you know, on one of these um, precipices in Florida whilst this kind of flooding's coming in and there's this hurricane behind them and they're saying to the camera, climate change isn't real, you know, while they're being blown away. This is what frustrates me is that the evidence is so blatant, you know, and, and there's no, it's not a matter of opinion. You know, every climate scientist is saying the same thing. The problem is if it's a bit like with COVID, you know, if you go looking for a quack doctor to deny that COVID is a thing, you're going to find one because it takes all sorts on this planet. And it's the same with climate change, isn't it? You know, there was famously at, at COP, I think it wasn't Glasgow, but it might have been the time before, the conference was going on in one venue and then over the road in another venue, they had a whole bunch of climate scientist deniers who had a who had an alternative version of events i mean this is all being paid for by the lobbyists right this is all being paid for by the big oil companies and the gas companies and i don't have to tell you but you know despite covid where people haven't been driving as much the likes of bp and shell they have actually made more profit in the last quarter than ever before. I mean, they are making billions and billions of dollars. And yet they're the ones that prevented electric cars from being used 50 years ago. I mean, the first Ford, the Model T, was an electric car. Uh, electric vehicles existed before combustion engine vehicles. And yet, you know, maybe people don't understand how big business has really rewritten history to make us use fossil fuel. And now those of us that are not buying it are waking up to the fact that electric is actually, it's not perfect because obviously it still uses fuel to, to generate the electricity, but not at anything like the rate that oil and gas does. And of course, there's no emissions with electric cars. So do you think Alexandra, do you think people will get this concept of collective responsibility, you know, where we can all do our little bit? Do you think people recognize that what they're hearing on TV or what 
you know, some people are saying is not based in truth. It's based on people who lobby them and that money is changing hands, that there's this whole business behind climate denying. Well, I hope that we'll have a, a collective consciousness shift where people start to see what is happening. But I think the problem is oil and gas have really bought our country. We don't have a rule by the people. We have a rule by the oil and gas companies. Um, so they're making the laws um, that we're seeing in this country and the policies that we have. And so I think that what we really have to start doing is um, becoming aware of it and calling it out. And I think that um, that's one of the things that we are really focusing on is talking to each other and educating each other when it comes to also people collectively taking action. One thing that I really want to see when people talk about individual actions and what can you do for our planet, I always say that there's one individual action that I want people to be taking. And that's where you, um, it, it's something that Bill McKibben talks about all the time as well, where you become less of a individual and more of a collective of people calling for action. So join a movement full of people, go out and find others in your community that are calling for climate action, join an organization. Uh, I think that that is one of the best things that you can do as an individual to start calling for this collective change and then we really just have to start calling out our governments and holding the oil and gas companies responsible for the damage that they've done to our planet. Let's talk about solutions because you know it's very important that in as 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 much as we talk about what's happening and the the rising temperature of the planet, not clean air and clean water as Donald Trump used to think that uh, climate change was. He he never ever got to grips with what climate change actually is, which is very worrying if you're the president. But California, where I am, is a very um, progressive state. And I think Gavin Newsom, the governor, really understands this. And in fact, California has just passed a, uh, a law to reduce single-use plastic. Uh, they say 30% of plastic items sold or bought um, have to be recyclable by 2028 and economic responsibility falls to the producers of these products. Nadia, do, let's just talk for a second about these types of initiatives that some states are pushing for. And uh, I mean, it, to me, the percentage just doesn't sound like enough, does it? I mean, we really need to get rid of all plastics. A lot of this stuff is ending up in the sea. It's not recyclable. Uh, fish are ingesting this, which means that plastics are getting into the food chain. Do you think that this initiative in California is a good idea? I do think that it's a good idea, but like you mentioned, it won't be enough. And that's the reality that we, we have to take a lot more action. And we, um, specifically the Biden administration, they, they promised to commit, they committed to reducing greenhouse gases by um, by 50% in, at 20, um, in 2023. So I think that although uh, California is taking this initiative, I think that there needs to be a nationwide, a nationwide, nationwide initiative to in solving um, the climate crisis because this won't, won't be enough. And a lot of scientists have, a lot of scientists have told us and have given us the facts on how we probably won't reach our goals and the goals stated in the Paris Agreement. If you don't mind me jumping in, I also sure. do want to say that Governor Newsom is still giving out fossil fuel permits. So I appreciate right. the new law on plastics, but what we need to do is to reduce 
um, single-use plastics, but the first solution is to reduce fossil fuels. I mean, even the IPCC report tells us that we can't have any new fossil fuel infrastructure, but California is still exploring for oil and gas. So I think that when it comes to them banning single-use plastics and you know, I think that they also have to start doing the no new fossil fuel infrastructure work too, or else it really just looks like they're trying to look green. Well, they just announced no new gas stations. They're not going to allow permits for new gas stations to be built. But it's a little bit late. It's a little bit like, you know, stopping uh, AR-15 semi-automatic weapons from being produced when there's already like 13 million of them in the country. And this is really my concern, is that we are too far gone. And I've often said that, you know, people who are going to be the last to join in with this movement will be the Republicans or people watching news channels that have a bias or listen to their leaders who have a bias. And the tragedy is that we have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Democratic Party who are blocking the climate and social bill. They are blocking anything that is really going to shift us to renewables. And and some countries have actually done very well. I mean, Costa Rica is almost completely carbon neutral. And, and I've often said there's so much land in America that isn't used for the harvest. I mean, we could paper the entire country with, with solar panels and put and put turbine wind turbines on every coastline, and we could probably cover most of the energy that we need with nuclear backing us up. Or maybe the other way around, you know, nuclear and then with renewables backing us up. And there are initiatives, I think I read about a study in, in Sweden where they, they've worked out a way to um, dispose of nuclear waste in a very safe way. They put it in canisters and they bury it very deep in the ground. And and so they are coming up with ways of, of you know, dealing with the nuclear issue, which is, of course, the waste. Alex, do you think that that's viable? Uh, I think that um, nuclear is affected by, um, you know, extreme weather. And I would really like like to see more solution, um, more nature-based solutions. And I think that really just keeping, um, you know, oil in the ground and then just reducing our emissions and focusing on renewable energy when it comes to, um, you know, solar. And I think that nuclear infrastructure is risky. And I think that, um, I mean, look at Fu- uh, Fukushima. I think that, you know, we really have to start looking at more stable solutions um, than just ca- causing another problem, trying to fix the problem that we already have. Interesting. Um, just finally, let's uh, just talk about the kind of immediate future. You know, this ruling from the Supreme Court is, is devastating, isn't it? And there are protests going on around the world for Roe last week and this week for this uh, decision against the EPA. I mean, do you think it is the job of government uh, to save our lives going forward? Or is it something that should be left to the people, Nadia? I do think that it's, it's the job of the government to represent the people and to protect the people's interest and to also um, to also protect public safety. And as I mentioned before, the climate crisis is a public safety matter. It's not a political issue. So it, it is the duty of the government to take action and to increase their efforts in solving the climate crisis. 
And um, it's really unfortunate that it, within the U.S., although the U.S. is one of the largest polluters in the world, we have politicians denying the climate crisis and um, politicians who are climate deniers. And it's really unfortunate because these some of these um, people are able to take advantage. Uh, some of these large corporations are able to take advantage and um, are unregulated by the government when it comes to their manufacturing process and when it comes to unsustainable practices. So I do believe that the government needs to needs to increase their efforts and it is their responsibility and duty to protect the people. And I also think education is so important, isn't it? Because people don't realize that, you know, if we buy, say, a plastic spoon or we're given a plastic spoon when we go and get Froyo, for example, that plastic spoon was probably made in China and plastic is made from oil and China gets its oil from Russia. And so, and so we are... You know, we're saying, well, we don't want Russian oil right now because of the war in Ukraine. But if we're still continuing to eat our froyo with a plastic spoon, we're still facilitating this use of fossil fuel via a country that we don't even want to be friends with. And so maybe educating people with conversations like this is really the only way out of it, because I, I worry that the media don't really have the um, interest in this subject because it doesn't it's not box office for them you know they, they they find that the the hurricane is exciting but the cause is is of no interest um we have to finish but i'm very grateful to you both i really am and and you know as a as a parent of a young daughter and a son myself i really kind of think a lot about their future and it's very good to know that there are young people across the country in fact across the planet certainly in your organization that are um taking this very seriously so thank you uh, to alexandria and nadia i'm anthony davis don't forget to subscribe to the weekend show on youtube or as an audio podcast and also the five minute news daily podcast which drops every morning so you can listen whilst you make your morning coffee and leave an iTunes review if you can. Uh, join me next time with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5 Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.